Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Britain begins social distancing. And many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. The economy is put on life support. We will do whatever it takes. And in a new coronavirus crisis feature, our guest reveals their current political passion. Uh, and we can all go out while still socially distancing. Uh, we can go out <laughs> and have a look at the, uh, the dark night sky. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and thanks to the magic of technology, we're keeping the podcast going despite social distancing. So I'm at home and joining me this week from Westminster is Paul Wall. Hello from Westminster. Hi, Paul. Uh, Rachel Wearmouth's also here, but where is she really? Um, I'm actually at home in East Finchley. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we're glad to be joined by the Conservative MP for Arundel and South Downs, Andrew Griffith. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Andrew. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's been a week like no other in living memory as Boris Johnson has switched his strategy for dealing with coronavirus away from trying to mitigate the outbreak to trying to suppress it. Faced with the prospect of up to 250,000 deaths in the UK, the Prime Minister closed schools and asked everyone to socially distance themselves, while asking the elderly and vulnerable to self-isolate for weeks. Let's hear the PM. I've got to be clear, we've all got to be clear, this is the worst public health crisis for a generation. Some people compare it to seasonal flu. Alas, that is not right. Owing to the lack of immunity, this disease is more dangerous and it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. Uh, Paul, what have you made of the government's response? Well, in a way, it, it, what's been really interesting is the way that response has developed over the last week or two weeks. Um, right at the beginning, we were all invited into these press conferences and briefings with the with the chief medical advisor and the scientific advisor. Uh, and then we started these press, press conferences. Now, at the beginning, it was quite clear there was a, a clear strategy the government was being and the prime minister was being really ruthless about saying, look, we're guided by the science. And that was quite reassuring for a lot of people, I think. Um, it was a new mode of governing for the prime minister after, let's be frank, a lot of uh, talk about how in the establishment, like the media, uh, suddenly come into their own and even civil servants suddenly come into their own. And, you know, let's be honest, experts come into their own. So it's a change, a gear change for the government. And they've handled it quite well at the beginning. Um 
and on Twitter, uh, I, I, I was actually quite supportive of the government over some of the things it was doing, particularly that sort of rational approach it was taking. And the BBC in particular I had a report at the weekend which seemed completely mad, in my opinion. I had a group of scientists who weren't epidemiologists who were criticising the government. Now, it's fine to criticise the government as long as you do it on epidemiological grounds. So what's, what's been really interesting, and as it happens, I think as a result of that, um, the, the fact that we in the media have taken a balanced approach the government have responded and said, yeah, we want to reach out more. We really need the media right now. So you get this sort of sense from number 10 that actually things are going in the right direction. Then this past week, I've got to say, the message became completely unclear. Um, it was far from clear what the position was on pregnant women. It was far from clear what the position was for elderly people. It still is for elderly people. There is no plan in place for all those people, that the core group who are most at risk, who are over 70 and have got an underlying health condition. I know that people in the NHS were inundated with calls about pregnant women, about they were really worried. They still are. They're not sure what the evidence is. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn turns up to PMQs um, was, again, another other clue. He's over 70. Actually, yeah, he should be reducing his social contact, but should he be going to the commons? There was just basically a lot of uh, confusion. And that really surprised me. So I think the government's still got a massive comms problem quite apart from the whole issue of what we talk about on the economy and how quickly yeah. it's doing that. Um, well, but in terms of communications, it felt to me this week as though it was the old Boris Johnson, you know, the libertarian sort of contrarian columnist, the Telegraph spectator columnist was bursting to get out and occasionally did make an appearance. And yet um, he knew they actually had to be quite sober and sombre at other times. too. So, Andrew, what do you make of what Paul was saying there, the kind of inner conflict of Boris Johnson and the fact that the message has maybe become slightly unclear? Look, I think um, we're in a position where things have moved with an unprecedented speed. Um, and this is a highly complex issue. Um, I think the government's got it about right. Um, we've clearly gone through over the last week, we've gone through that moment on the curve that they all talked about where we saw the number of cases escalate very rapidly. Uh, and as a result, it's triggered a number of things. Uh, and I think I think ministers have been pretty adroit in coming forward just at the moment that that there are. Um, uh, there are gates that we've gone through. So you saw we've we've had almost two budgets, but we had the, the original statement on economics on Monday. Uh, and then then the chancellor came back um, uh, later on again in, in just just this week. Um, it's clearly a situation of unprecedented complexity. Um, there's there's been lots of crisis rehearsals that I know have been done in government before, including a lot of the no deal planning, but none of it involved every single sector, every department in government having to make changes simultaneously. So against that context, I actually think what they've done is very good. I think they've kept the confidence of the financial markets as far as uh, that's been possible to do. As we as we speak, there's clearly more coming. Um, more clarity on some of the situations, um, but they've they've pivoted and stayed on top of the situation where they need to be. Yeah. Not yeah. everything's perfect, but but you know that's life, uh, and it is a situation of unprecedented complexity. Yeah, R Rachel Boris Johnson was kind of cool on the on the you know people were calling for the schools to close, and Boris Johnson seemed very very reluctant to do that. Rachel, uh, and now it's happened. Uh, uh, how big an issue is this? Um, well, it, it is one of the things, the last things that he said he would do, you know, it's kind of like he, he wanted to put it off for as, for as long as possible because it has such a, 
a massive impact on on families and on societies. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. And the, the, again, there's a lot of questions that haven't quite been ironed out yet. They've kind of just quickly moved to this being the case. Um, so uh, Friday will be kids' last day. Um, and it's important to say that from, from Monday, some schools will have a kind of like skeleton operation for for key workers we don't know we don't exactly know what key workers includes yet but um we know for certain it'll be nhs staff as they kind of continue to try and help tackle the virus um there's loads of questions left for families like sort of how do parents work from home if they have to also look after their kids you know i mean everyone at the same time has been asked to work from home where possible um, yeah. Very, di- very difficult if you've got a, a five-year-old and a ten-year-old running around, um, and it also kind of uh, big questions for the, for um, kids and and young people themselves. You know, they'll be missing out on education at a vital time in their lives. Um, the the PM said yesterday that um, ex- examinations in in May and June were were not going to go ahead. At least, at least we know that for for schools in England. Um, and that that's going to be incredibly disruptive for them. You know, as an adult, you know that um, things change and move on, and you get second chances. But it's going to feel like a big deal for a lot of, yeah. a lot of teenagers, and it's going to be very, very disruptive for them. And um, yeah. just just thinking separately about a, a different issue. You know, you know, a lot of universities have moved to online teaching. But if you're paying nine grand a a year for your tuition fees, I mean, you, you're not going to feel. Um, not going to feel wonderful about it. We're used to government as a sort of often government communications historically has been quite staccato. It's like, mm. you know, here I am, I'm descending from Mount Sinai with a tablet of stone, and this in one go is everything you need to know. Mm. And I think for a crisis of this complexity, one of the things we're going to see is you have to think of those as more of a flow. So there's mm. an economic flow, there's a flow about what's going to happen in education. Uh, there's a flow about, you know, what's the the knock-on impacts um, through the health system and the social care system. And I think we have to get used to a little bit of there'll be a rhythm to how we're communicated with, but it won't be all in one go. Yeah, hmm. I think that's fair enough, Andrew. I mean, you you know Boris quite well. I understand uh, you're quite close, still relatively close to 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 the prime minister. How do you think he's dealing with this on a kind of personal level? You know, he's not the usual Boris we see bouncing into press conferences and so on. No, he's very, in my experience, he's very resilient. Um, he's 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 good at listening. Um, and then, as you have to be, unfortunately, being decisive. You know, I've heard the, heard the different points of view. I've heard the science. I've heard the advice. Uh, and now this is, this is how we have to act. Um, but he also you know, cares a lot. And it's very easy, I think, from his time in journalism, which is about storytelling Mm. and has essentially the human condition at the heart of it. In my experience, he'll project very quickly from the abstract, which is a lot of the advice that's given to the personal in terms of how that would affect uh, an individual or a particular um, part of society. So, uh, I mean, I think his leadership is, is good in this. Um, but obviously it's going to take, it's quite an emotional drain every day having to take these decisions. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Paul, you've been in Westminster all week while some, the rest of us haven't really. Um, wh- what's it been like down there? It kind of seems increasingly absurd that we're having kind of normal commons question sessions about humdrum issues at DEFRA when we've got this crisis going on. What, what, what's it been like down at Westminster? Well, the interesting thing was pre- PMQs this week. It was the first time ever in my experience of 22 years of being in this building, seeing a very, very quiet 
PMQs because there were so few people in the chamber. They were all socially distanced. That was because MPs were told by the whips on both sides only to turn up if you had a question down on the order paper. And there was a completely different atmosphere. I mean, I personally didn't like it because I'm sure lots of MPs didn't like it either because that's not what we want from our parliament. We want a robust sort of exchange. Um, at the same time, it's perfectly understandable. But I talked to several MPs who got that text just before before PMQ saying, well, what's the point of me being here? You know, I'm not here to walk around corridors and do nothing. I want to be in the chamber saying things. Um, so I can understand it. It's been very strange. And certainly these press conferences every day, they've been fantastic in many ways in terms of getting the government's message across every day. I think they're a great innovation. The Prime Minister himself, I think, privately likes questions. He likes press conferences. It's just that a lot of people around him don't want him to do them. Um, and I think he's learning that the power of actually being put under scrutiny, he, he actually thrives on it. And he, yeah, of course, there'll be pushback. Of course, there'll be criticism. But then he at least he's got a chance to, to regroup as any, any democracy and any government should do under criticism. The interesting thing will be next week, whether or not these press conferences, you know, I think they're going to slim down the number of people going there because of social mm. distancing. We're all seen at the moment, you know, shoulder to shoulder in these press conferences. I think that's going to end. Uh, and we'll have something a bit more like what they have in the US and in Ireland, where reporters are literally two metres apart. But yeah, it's been a strange atmosphere this week. There's no question. Uh, certainly in the chamber today, what was interesting, and we can come on to that in a bit, was just how many Conservative MPs are frustrated at the lack of action for workers uh, in terms of their wages. Yeah, well, yeah, you touched on it there. I mean, another deeply distressing aspect of the pandemic is the prospect of economic collapse, with financial markets crashing and numerous industries simply being unable to operate. Uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak has responded by ripping up the budget and announcing a £350 billion rescue package, the majority of which is state-backed loans. Let's just have a listen to him. This struggle will not be overcome by a single package of measures or isolated interventions. It will be won through a collective national effort. Every one of us doing all we can to protect family, neighbours, friends, jobs. This national effort will be underpinned by government interventions in the economy on a scale unimaginable only a few weeks ago. This is not a time for ideology and orthodoxy. This is a time to be bold, a time for courage. I want to reassure every British citizen, this government will give you all the tools you need to get through this. We will support jobs, we will support incomes, we will support businesses, and we will help you protect your loved ones. We will do whatever it takes. Um, Paul, uh, you, we've touched on the economic issues there, but um, Sunak said this isn't a time for ideology, but a time to be bold. Has he been bold enough? Well, a, a range of MPs today, in Duncan Smith um, and Greg Clark, crucially, former business secretary, said the government isn't doing enough. And, you know, these were the low Brexiteers, uh, such as Sir Bernard Jenkin um, and people who weren't Brexiteers like Peter Aldous, all saying the same thing. We need to act and we need to act quickly. I felt sorry for John Glenn because he was sent out um, onto this sticky wicket. Um, it, you would have thought it'd be someone more senior, but uh, he was sent out there and he basically said, look, we want to get the right scheme in place, that, that we need to get it right rather than rush it necessarily. And you can see that point of view. But equally, you know, the Treasury have had, you know, they can respond quite quickly to some of these things. I know they're looking at a national insurance 
cut for employers. Um, I don't know what the delay is in announcing it. They said <clears> they're <throat> going to consult. But I think the, the sense of urgency is really great. And they've got to announce something by tomorrow, I think. Yeah, Andrew, I mean, some, some countries are looking at a kind of universal basic income or payments to, to workers um, to get them through this. Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, look, I think the... I mean, I think you've seen a lot of leg already, to be honest, on this. So um, the government said it'll do whatever it takes. Um, it's come forward um, earlier in the week with a, a whole series of both sectoral um, and you know, liquidity, um, giving people the ability to just um, keep their businesses going. Um, and John Glenn in the House again today was was very much saying, you know, there will be things that are going on. I think the session itself coincided with precisely a meeting that was taking place in the Treasury with the TUC, with the Federation of Small Businesses, the CBI, um, and others around exactly how that scheme can work. So it's something I support, something I called for over a week ago. Um, mm. Business without it will find it very difficult to stay viable. So it's not just about having the cash or the ability to borrow, but it's also about having a path to balance the books at the end of the week or the month, which is a, a key issue. Um, and I suspect we won't have that long to wait now uh, before we hear something. There's always a little bit of a balance and all of these, I think, are not binary decisions. They're a little bit like, you know, where do you set the slider in terms mm. of having enough detail so that when they come out with something, they can answer all the, some of the follow-up questions versus, you know, stating something at a principles level but getting that out earlier not being able to answer all the follow-up questions but being able to establish the principle uh, which i think in this case would be helpful um, because it is the number one thing that the businesses i speak to on the phone uh, are all saying they just don't know how to uh, to keep their staff and none of yeah. us want to uh, to see them all flood into the benefit system for a whole bunch of reasons um, Rachel, you're kind of this round circles around your R. Do you are you wanting to come in there? Or? Yes, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking like that. The, this whole crisis is going to entirely reshape the economy, and I think I think I guess it's, I can appreciate that the government will just be entirely firefighting at the moment and thinking about how to minimise damage. But I wonder if um, some sort of longer term thinking was needed. Um, there'd be a lot of businesses right now that are looking at their supply chain and and thinking about how their business might change in the future. So if you th thought about all of the job losses that we might have had with automation and with the, the switch to, to um, cutting carbon to, to in future sometime zero carbon. Um, I'm just wondering if a lot of the job losses that we would have had with automation and, and via climate change, the, res the response to climate change, um, if all of those job losses now will be will be speeded up and if if people could be using this time to upskill in some kind of way and mm -hmm. um, to be doing online courses and i'm just wondering if that is one of the things that that could be in uh, the education secretary's entry alongside everyone who's yeah. going to lose their jobs now how are they going to re-enter the economy in future yeah andrew what do you make of that just I mean, I mean as rachel said the government's got to be firefighting but does it need to be thinking about what comes after yet at the moment, it needs to be 99% reacting to the here and now. I honestly believe that because there is a lot to do. Um, my, my, be, my view is they're not going to be able to solve every single thing in real time. That, that mm. we, we need to understand the unprecedented complexity of this. Um, but the more you can create islands of stability, you know, stability for those in employment, stability for those on, on universal 
credit, uh, stability for those in, in the health service around their childcare facilities. The more systemic systemating, um, stability that you create, the more systemic, excuse me, yes, the more systemic funny. stability that you create. Um, and, and that should be the priority right now. I think Rachel's right, though, in, in pushing into something that, that there will be new learned behaviours. I think, you know, this will teach us again uh, about the fragility of some of our supply chains and the importance of community, something that um, I don't think has actually been actively neglected. But I think it is going to teach us all a lesson about the importance of community um, and that will change our minds and uh, our political uh, thinking for a generation as well. So there's no scenario in which this doesn't have a big long term effect. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, I think, you know, we should treat the economy and societies a little bit like it's in the intensive care unit itself. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't really want your ICU doctors and nurses to be thinking too much about, you know, the next building, the next wing of the hospital in 20 years time. Yeah. Um, Andrew, you were, you were Boris Johnson's financial advisor in, in number 10 before. Uh, being elected as an MP, they won't utter the words, but we're heading for a recession here, aren't we? It's fair to say that. I think we're, de I mean, there's definitely, I'm not trying to dance around anything. Yeah. There is definitely going to be a fairly big, profound economic impact. Mm. Um, I don't think that will come back overnight. But going into this, also, the fundamentals were pretty good. Um, yeah. And I think if if we come out the other side um, at the range of some of the sort of impacts we've seen, I, I would be pretty optimistic about the economy, the real economy, you know, what, what the financial markets are doing at any particular time, uh, I'm less interested in. But if you measure the real economy in terms of people's productivity, their ability to get work, societally, our ability to provide interesting and rewarding and valuable jobs for the next generation, I think there are really good reasons to be optimistic. So I, I'm not pessimistic, but there will be an economic impact for sure. Yeah, just a final... No, go on, Paul. Sorry, I was going to say, I was going to ask Andrew, one thing I find really fascinating about this period is that the Prime Minister um, is far from being a, a laissez-faire um, conservative. I'm just wondering about what you think about now the role of the state, the, the size of borrowing, all the things that a traditional conservative would necessarily be not only be comfortable with look like they're here to stay for the foreseeable future. Uh, look, I think I think that's broadly right. Um, I mean, when we when when demand picks up again, um, my view has long been that we do need an enterprise-led renaissance in the economy. The economy is perhaps a little bit too top-heavy in some areas. Um, it's long been a, a point, not really of of political contention, that it's too unbalanced with too much of it in the southeast and not spread uh, as uniformly across the UK as it could be and as Rachel said we do need to pivot away from some some industries that are very carbon intense and open up new areas of opportunity uh, in areas that are going to grow much faster uh, and it, this this could be a process of accelerating that there's a, there's another point if I may which is also this this is this has taught us that we've actually federated a lot of important parts of delivering in Whitehall. So you remember just in, in early January before um, the reshuffle, there was a lot of talk about how you restructure Whitehall. Um, and the, the best part of that was on a focus for really delivering for, for for ordinary folk up and down the country. Mm. Again, some of the time that it's taken to respond to some of these things 
do speak a little bit to that Whitehall reform agenda. You know, the reason we can't come out immediately and say what's going to happen uh, about exams and about college admissions is because you've got a whole bunch of uh, different levels and arm's length bodies that are involved in that conversation. It's not what we always would have thought of as the Department of Education. And, yeah, that's, and Andrew, that's... The, the, one, one other long term impact might be the fact that what we're doing right now, as imperfect as it is, video conferencing is going to be massive. There's a huge demand for broadband working at home. Do you think actually that maybe it, the, those critics of HS2, for example, who said, look, you don't need to physically be in Birmingham or in London. You can have a video conference call for a business meeting. Um, that the case for HS2 is perhaps damaged by this, and even the case for long-haul international flight for business? Look, I, th I think yes and yes and no. Um, I mean, most of my career has been in business. You know, I spent 20 years in a, in a company that was managing across borders um, and was, was a very, very really a digital first or a digital early adopter. Um, and I learned both the power of technology, but also the drawback of technology. Um, and, you know, we're, we're also, as well as learning the power of technology, I think we're also going to learn a lot about the drawbacks and frustration of social isolation um, and how, you know, real creativity, whether it's in, in your world um, or in other spheres, um, does actually come from human interaction. So I, I doubt we're going to wean ourselves off the addiction of, of, of the human experience that's been part of how society's grown for the last 2000 years. But but for sure, some changes will will come through. Have you spoken to the to the prime minister, Andrew? How is he actually personally coping, do you think? I have not spoken to him this week. Um, I, I he's pretty resilient. I mean, all, all I've got to go on is my experience. The, the period between July of last year, when we came into number 10 and December, uh, was was not a famously easy period in politics. Um, it was it was tough on personal relationships, if you remember, during those um, those those difficult months as well, and there were difficult line calls to make. Um, yeah. So I've seen in him fabulous reserves of of personal resilience, um, and I imagine he is is thriving at the centre of things. But but this is going to be a marathon, and one of the reasons I think there's not too much pushback from some of the measures that Paul was talking about, like spacing ourselves out a bit a bit better at Prime Minister's question time, is that we actually need to keep Parliament running for the whole of this. It is no point us all, you know, jumping up and down for a week or two um, and then not being able to get Parliament going because there has been too much uh, contagion of virus. So I'm, I'm happy that we run this a bit a bit long. Yeah, um, just touching on that kind of thing about how we're all dealing with this. How is everyone doing this? How, how's everyone finding it? Any tips to pass on about social distancing? Um, it's, I mean, I've, it's, uh, it's it, to be honest, just from my own point of view, I feel like I've, I've, I've spent like the last few days writing the news and um, I, I don't know how much time I've actually felt like I've absorbed that much of it. Um, and I, but I guess I'm, I'm not alone in that. A lot of people will be reading the news and will be finding it quite unbelievable, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, from my point of view, I've, I've got three boys, one of whom is in India, uh, um, trying to get back from India. Um, and the other two are facing the idea of being off school. Um, and one may well go into school, but we'll see because both his parents may be 
classed as critical workers. But the difficult thing, I think, is that, as Rachel says, we, we spend so much time writing the news, actually absorbing it and living it is, is, is sometimes difficult for journalists. And I, I don't know, I think it's going to hit me at Easter when my, my holiday to Japan has been completely cancelled. Mm. And we're going to try and think about how on earth we uh, keep three teenagers entertained uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a short, um, enclosed space, put it that way. <laughs> uh, Paul, you my dog, my it. dog is loving it. My uh, my Shih Tzu is getting walked like twice a day, and he just thinks it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Andrew? I mean, have you been going into Parliament at all, or have you been trying to stay away? I've been I've been going into Parliament. I've got my staff to uh, to work from home, so they didn't take any unnecessary risks, and. It's really hard, in truth. Um, you know, I'm used to whizzing between the constituency and Parliament, and now every time I think about a constituent, I have to worry that um, they're not going to get the usual service from their Member of Parliament. They're actually going to get a uh, potentially fatal disease. Um, <laughs> so that's a bit of a that's a bit of a blanket downer um, on the face-to-face -face interaction yeah. that I'd normally be having. Um, and remember, I'm a new MP. So this is this is only I think this week someone told me it was my hundredth day as a member of parliament. Yeah. Uh, and so just just as I was struggling to get used to anyway, uh, what being an MP and parliamentary life involves, suddenly someone comes along and changes the paradigm again. But yeah. I think I'm going to gravitate to towards Westminster because that's the bit that only I can do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Just, just in terms of me, uh, I've been finding it okay. I, I'm very lucky, I think, to have a park nearby. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time there. Um, but as you said, Andrew, you're a new MP, and there's obviously a million issues you want to discuss apart from coronavirus. And since there's going to be little to talk about on this podcast apart from coronavirus for a while, we're, we've got a new feature which we're inventing in which we're asking guests to bring in a, uh, an issue they're passionate about and uh, talk about it and we'll, we might ask some questions. So Andrew, what's your uh, MP's choice? Well, thank you. I wanted to talk about something called the Dark Skies Movement um, and Earth Hour, which is coming up at the end of March. It's on Saturday, 28th of March. And this is this is one thing that I think there's no jeopardy uh, about going ahead with. Um, and essentially, it's about trying to reduce or eliminate light pollution. That's good on lots of levels. It's good for you know, reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, it's good for, for nature and, and species. Uh, but it's also, if I, if I make a slight link with everything else we're talking mm. about, it's also good for establishing our place in the world. And the premise is, you know, a lot of us when we grew up, but certainly 100 years ago, you'd look at the night sky. And, and if you were in the Northern Hemisphere and if you lived in the UK, you could see the Milky Way. Uh, mm -hmm. People used to navigate by the stars. And we've lost a lot of that with the advent of electricity and electric lighting, which has brought lots of benefits. But one of the things that it, it, it has done is mean that something like 60 percent of people in the UK can't see most of the stars at night. Mm -hmm. So Earth Hour is about having one night a year where we turn off non-essential lights at 830 uh, and we can all go out while still socially distancing uh, we can go out and have a look at the uh, the dark night sky if we're if we're lucky it'll be a cloudless night and the broader dark skies movement and i've set up a parliamentary group on on this to campaign to see what we can do to reduce light pollution uh, yeah. over time uh, is all about doing that and establishing reserves and and making the case uh, the funny thing I didn't realise is I set this up and um, I was slightly humbled when uh, it turns out that uh, Lord Merlin Rees is the Royal Astronomer. 
uh, and is a mm. member of the House of Lords, and he came along. So he's agreed to be the uh, the co-chairman with me. But uh, we've got a touch oh. of royalty and a touch of astronomy going on as well. Fantastic. And, and I mean, is, is this just an issue that you, you kind of want to raise awareness of? Or is there something that is there? Is there a policy agenda here, do you think? A, a bit of both. I mean, the, the best thing in life is always if you can raise awareness. I think uh, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. Um, mm. There is a policy agenda. A part of the national planning policy framework does um, at the moment talk about development having some regard to the impact on dark skies it doesn't go very far and i'd like to see that beefed up i'd like to see it extended if you think about um and i don't blame anybody but if you think about some of the culprits who are burning lights the brightest at night it's often those big 24-hour warehouses mm. sometimes sports stadium um, who are lighting up their grass but with a huge amount of light pollution mm. um, sometimes uh, in a petrol stations so I, I would like to see some concrete changes it's a good you know new MP issue because I can I yeah. think I can push reasonably hard on that um, and it, it's not going to get in the way of other things um, but also there's a constituency link which is my constituency which I'm dearly in love with uh, of Arundel and South Downs is one of the uh, the UK's few dark sky reserves it's a national park the newest national park and it's the one that's most closely interlinked with urban areas so we're yeah. right on the frontier of this issue of light pollution yeah and and Paul I mean reducing light pollution and earth hour and, and dark skies it does help us reduce our carbon emissions as well and that is maybe one positive we can take from the coronavirus crisis so far is that there are basically no flights and carbon emissions will be going through the floor right i think one of the things that has come out of this crisis is whether or not um business in particular rethinks long-haul flight as i said earlier you know they've all got their own climate tar targets to meet but more importantly it's it's cheaper if you video for conference um it, it's it, there's, you save time as well as saving carbon and the difficulty of that is that for the rest of us we all rely on people at the front of the plane for subsidizing people at the back of the plane and I think there could be a massive shift in, in what that means for global travel overall. We may just shift towards, ironically, short-haul short flights or even trains. Um, and long-haul may, may, in you know, 50 years' time, may look like it's a, a real relic. Mm. Um, right, I think we better move on. It's time for the quiz. Hey. Um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, delayed response there. Uh, we're going to stray away from politics a bit this week because it's been quite hard to pull together a topical politics quiz. Um, but it is all about coronavirus, so still topical. Uh, so, uh, Andrew, just just uh, shout the answer if you know it, essentially, is, okay. the, only, is the only rule. Uh, so, question number one, uh, which Premier League football manager has been infected with the virus? Oh, is that Nigel Pearson? No. Damn, I know he was he was moaning about coronavirus. <laughs> Anyone? Um, uh, Frank Lampard? Nope. All right, it's, too, it's taking too long. It's Mikel Arteta of Arsenal. Arsenal, of course it is. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, the next one. Uh, young Americans are flocking to Florida from all over the country despite the coronavirus outbreak, but why? Ooh. This was it's not story. spring break. It's yes. not spring break. It's spring break, <laughs> Andrew. Yeah. And they're still doing it. They're still doing it. There's, ah. there's thousands of them there partying away. 
Uh, I think the kind of reasoning is it's not going to stop us partying, the make of that what you will. Uh, okay, so Andrew's in the lead with one point, and we're, we've got the final question. Um, a bit a bit more on topic. Um, epidemiologist Neil Ferguson said this week there is a lot of COVID-19 in which London area? Westminster. Yes, yes. it's got to be Westminster. <laughs> correct. Yes, correct. All right, it's a draw, Rachel. And, and, and then he promptly got it, didn't he? Or he's he self-isolated. Did, yeah. So uh, he proved his own point. Yeah, something for us all to look forward to. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, We'll just leave you with Donald Trump revealing how he thinks he's dealt with the coronavirus. Mr. President, the other day you said that you were not responsible for the testing shortfall. Very simple question. Does the buck stop with you? And on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your response to this crisis? I'd rate it a 10. I think we've done a great job. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.